1: The
0: history of Belfast is dominated by the recent troubles and then the sectarian violence that has regularly flared in the city over the last 140 years. Less well-known, however, is the port's connection to the slave trade. In the 18th and early 19th century, Belfast, like most major cities in Britain and Ireland, had strong connections to the transatlantic slave trade. However, in Belfast, a city with a long history of radicalism This would lead to a determined anti-slavery movement from the 1780s onwards. This podcast looks at the fascinating story of Belfast's connections to the slave trade and the role its citizens played in bringing that trade to an end. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire. In this episode, I'm joined by Tom Thorpe to discuss the history of the slave trade in Belfast. Now Tom is one of the co-founders of the Belfast Anti-Slavery Tour and in today's show he has a fascinating story to tell about Belfast's long connections with the horrors of slavery and then the role the city played in bringing it to an end. You can find out more about Tom's walking tours at antislaverybelfast.com That's antislaverybelfast.com Sound on today's episode is by Kate Dunley. To start our discussion, I asked Tom about the historic connections between Belfast and the slave trade. I was surprised at how far back this goes. While there may not have been many slaves on the docks in Belfast, the city's economy was bound up in the transatlantic slave trade.
2: So so Belfast is formed in 1613 and it it starts to to evolve very slowly, but it starts to have connections with the transatlantic slave trade you know, really towards the end of the 17th century. I mean, probably the most notable one, if you're on one of the tour, we we pass a place called Sugar House Entry. So the entries in Belfast are these very small sort of back back lanes, and so in Sugar House Entry, you actually had a sugar refinery used to process sugar when it came off the ships and so this is one of the very first sort of connections that Belfast has with the transatlantic slave trade now it's not just about owning slaves and running plantations it's about you know supporting sending products so it sends it sends brown linen so linen produced in Belfast in the late 17th century that goes off to clothe slaves lots of shoes Belfast has a large sort of tannery and cobblers industry that sends shoes to, to the West Indies. So it starts this sort of transatlantic trade, very much supporting um, sending dried and salted meats over, because a lot of these air islands, especially like places like Dominica, don't have any agricultural capability. So You know, a lot of the the products that Belfast sends in the 1800s are to the West Indies. There's a a very interesting table which looks at ships which are registered to trade in 1819, and 25 of the 58 ships are trading with the West Indies. In the late 18th century, there was an
0: attempt by some merchants in the city to get even more directly involved in the trade and established what would be called the Belfast Slave Ship Company, which would have seen slave ships operate out of the port.
2: There's a there's an individual called Waddell Cunningham and he is a Belfast merchant. He is very much, uh, he's a Presbyterian, attends, I think, I think it's second church, I could be wrong, but he's essentially a Presbyterian. He's a merchant. He does a lot of interesting, should we say, double dealing in the Seven Years' War. That's from 1750, mid-1750s to the early 1760s. So he's supplying goods, not only to the British, but the Spanish and the French with whom the British are fighting. He has a large shipbuilding company or a shipping company in New York, the biggest at the time. And he, he has to leave New York because he gets into sort of criminal activity and so he comes back to Belfast in the 1780s he's proposing this, this this idea of the Belfast slave ship company so this follows you know there's a similar one in Limerick 1784 and essentially it's that my understanding is that you'd own a number of ships from Belfast which would be involved in the slave trade very much in a way that similar British cities like Liverpool where a number I think it was 25 Lord Mayors were, were slave owners in their own right these moves faced stern opposition, led by the prominent radical Thomas McCabe. But this this is actually shot down by Thomas McCabe, who famously recalls that wither, and he, he, he holds up, and he points his finger, so the legend goes, and he says, wither the hand any man that signs that document and gives the first guinea. And so the the ship company actually doesn't get any takers and it largely fizzles out.
0: While this attempt to establish the Belfast Slave Ship Company may have floundered, there were a number of Belfast merchants who did own slave plantations, including Waddell Cunningham, the man who had tried to establish that company. Now, these plantations on the Caribbean island of Dominica were named after local places in the northeast of Ireland, such as Belfast and Hillsborough.
2: Now, so as in for direct... Ownership of slaves in a more conventional way that we we understand. There are a number of individuals and who, who are involved, and certainly Woodell Cunningham. Is one of them and his plantation called Belfast. I think there's a Mr. There's a Dr. Halliday who has a plantation called Hillsborough. I think these are both on Dominica. The Belfast plantation still exists to a day, to, to a degree. You can still see the legacy today of that in Dominica. They are a distillery producing Belfast rum. So this is this is what we have in terms of sort of, I suppose, direct slave ownership. But lots of people are sort of benefiting indirectly from the process, the products that come into Belfast to be processed in terms of cotton and things like
0: that. Now, in the 1830s, the British government finally abolished the institution of slavery, but actually compensated the slave owners. However, the records of this compensation process revealed the extent of slave owners in Belfast, as Tom now explains
2: when slavery finally becomes uh, abolished the British government in their wisdom decide to compensate a number of individuals who own slaves so you know this so in terms of Belfast there are five plantations owned by three individuals and one of them which is John Cunningham which is a descendant I think I'm not cons- completely certain of Waddell and two other gentlemen William Forsyth you can see them on the University College website so essentially they they own probably around 600 slaves altogether and three three individuals in Belfast that's probably relatively small about 80 1930 Belfast would have probably had a population of around 70, 80,000. So it's relatively small. So Belfast doesn't have the same sort of history as Bristol, London, and Liverpool. You know that's why we say we're very much an anti-slavery tour rather than a slavery tour.
0: We next turned our attention to this anti-slavery movement. There were in fact two distinct phases to its history. The first dating from the later 18th century, and then a second phase in the lead-up to the American Civil War as Tom explained.
2: Well, I, I, I would argue that probably falls into two 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 considerable blocks. Firstly, there's the sort of the late 18th century, early 19th century part of the history. So obviously that is the abolition of the slave trade, firstly, and then the practice of slavery or the institutional slavery within the British Empire. And then the second part is very much around from the 1840s to the 1860s, which focused on the abolition of slavery in the southern part of the United States, obviously the cotton plantations that we are obviously very familiar with.
0: We first focused on the emergence of the initial anti-slavery movement in the late 18th century, Belfast was at the time one of the most radical cities in Ireland, and Tom explains how the
2: movement emerged. Around 1780-1790s, a city of around 20,000 people, largely Protestant, largely Presbyterian, and there is a large number of merchants who are making a, a, sort of a great, great deal of money in sort of contemporary terms, and they are really the, the leading forces behind the abolition of the slave trade. People like Thomas McCabe, the Joy family. And individuals like this who are often tradesmen in their own work, uh, Thomas McKay, for instance, is a watchmaker, and there's a number of other other people who are involved in that. And But they're also tied up with doing a lot of other civic good as well. For instance, they build the Belfast Poor House, which um, is opened in 1774, and they they also set up what's known as the Ballast Board, which is essentially a private body to improve the harbour.
0: Now, most of these people were associated with the United Irishmen, the Republican movement founded in Belfast in the 1790s who would go on to organise a major rebellion against British rule in Ireland in 1798. Before we discuss the United Irishmen, however, I wanted to know more about the broader conditions in the 1780s and 1790s that led to the emergence of an anti-slavery movement in Belfast. Slavery had, after all, existed for centuries. So what was unique about that moment in the late 18th century? Tom next explains how there were a few factors at work, although some might initially appear unrelated, they would prove integral to the movement emerging.
2: So why, why does that happen in, in Belfast at this time? It's a really good question. I think there are a number of, uh, of factors. I think firstly, you've got a group of merchants who have an increasing amount of leisure time. So you've got people like Thomas McCabe, who are well, wealthy watchmakers. They have a degree of leisure to enter into civic and municipal activities. For instance, some of them are involved in the, in the, in the poorhouse. They set up the Belfast Charitable Association. So they have time to do this. Secondly, I think it's very much connected with literacy and a sort of an increase in literacy over this time. So you've got the elite people who obviously have a degree of education and this sort of rise of literacy you get in the latter part of the 18th century, with institutions like the Linen Hall Library, as we know, and various type of intellectual sort of uh, movements at the time. Obviously, you have the Enlightenment going on, where there's a large intellectual growth of interest in political ideas, and and individuals start to challenge the notions of hierarchy. And so you sort of see uh, a split in Belfast society, where you see a number of people beginning to, you know, uh, assume that race does not mean that people are inferior where this idea may have been accepted before so and I think the other thing that's also very important is is the the religious element of this so you have large numbers of Presbyterians in Belfast many of whom attend various Presbyterian churches on Rosemary Avenue you have the famous First Presbyterian Church and then Second and Third Presbyterian Churches where they're established in the early parts of the 18th century and, and through the 18th century so you get a large religious content so people from both Of from all three churches become actively involved in the abolitionist movement.
0: The United Irishmen, that radical republican organisation founded in the 1790s, was, however, central to the anti-slavery movement in Belfast. Tom explains their views and attitudes towards the slave trade.
2: And they're very much tied up with the United Irishmen, And they take the lessons of the American Revolution, which was successful in kicking the British out of the 13 colonies in in the uh, mid mid to late 18th century. And also the French Revolution, which becomes, you know, very, very prominent then. You know, they're they're holding events at the assembly rooms in 1792 to Mark Bastille Day. Many of the United Irishmen, people like Thomas Russell, Henry Joy McCracken, etc., they're also at very... Avid abolitionists, so they very much believe in the abolition of slavery, and they also link the the, the institution of slavery or they or they see themselves as slaves, slaves of British colonialism and British rule. Obviously, they see that they're very different from the transatlantic slave trade and and uh, Africans who are enslaved into uh, the institution of slavery in the Americas. But they make a sort of a parallel that they they have a, they have a common, a sh- I suppose a shared identity in a way, and very much there are slogans there which which also talk about. Free of slavery. I think that their sort of views on slavery, and many of them are deeply uncompromising on this, people like Thomas Russell, who is a librarian at the Lindenhall Library, but he refuses to eat sugar. And so he's, you know, won't touch anything with sugar on because it is tainted by the, the blood of slaves. And many of them are deeply very, very sort of radical on this. They see that humanity as a whole, that you know, the fact of your your, the colour of your skin does not dictate the intellectual capability that you have.
0: Ultimately, slaves and former slaves, however, would play the key role in this struggle. They were the ones who, after all, brought attention to the reality of the trade to people in Britain and Ireland. And amongst the most important of these in the 1790s was Lauda Equiano. He published a very influential tract on his experiences as a slave, and then actually visited Belfast, energising the movement in the
1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
2: City. Equiano's account is probably one of the most famous ones. Obviously, he sets out his life in Nigeria or modern-day Nigeria, and then he's sold into slavery, goes across the Atlantic, and eventually ends up in Jamaica as a slave gets him purchased his uh, way out of slavery, joins the Royal Navy is on a boat with Horatio Nelson and eventually settles in London and then starts to get involved in the in the abolition of the slave trade in London and comes to Belfast in the 1790s. I think his visit probably had a tremendous impact. You know, this this was 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 relatively rare. Somebody of colour in Belfast. Plus he was, you know, an eloquent and well-dressed gentleman. And he was incredibly articulate. He, he had a, you know, quite an amazing life. His time in the Royal Navy, he had travelled, I think, up to the Arctic. He bought his way out of slavery. He married in London, settled. And he, he was becoming involved in... In this sort of, I suppose, growing movement to abolish slavery. And I think his impact in, in Belfast was was phenomenal in many ways because he he actually tells for the first time, he's a witness to what's happened. And it in his book, you know, the fact he he had learned to read and write as well, which was also incredible. So I think his his impact was. Phenomenal in many ways, it's sort of, and he becomes a celebrity, he's very, he, he reports that he was very well treated in Belfast. There were also a series of incidents
0: which brought the horrors of the slave trade to public attention. Now, one of the most notorious and harrowing of these was the Zong incident. The Zong was a slave ship, and in the 1780s, a court case between the slave ship owners and their insurance company revealed the brutal and horrific way slaves were viewed and treated.
2: It transpires that the crew of the Zong were crossing the Atlantic Ocean from the west coast of Africa to Jamaica, and they realised they didn't have enough water on board for all the slaves they had, plus the crew. So they uh, decided to throw a a large number of these slave people overboard and claim the insurance uh, based on the fact that these individuals were property and the insurers refused to pay, and they were taken to court. So this court case becomes sort of, um, it sort of gra- grabs people, and it starts to create sort of people becoming aware of the conditions uh, of slavery in in the West Indies, where a lot of people probably had an appreciation of what's going on, but nobody really knew about the conditions that you actually have, because very few people actually were um, had knowledge of it.
0: Well, a vibrant anti-slavery movement emerged in Belfast, Tom explains how it was not necessarily a mass movement, but
2: more limited to the city merchants. This is very much, I think at the time, uh, something for the elite. You know, this is something which a lot of people who've got time and and can get involved in, in, you know, these type of meetings and midday they don't they're not living a sort of a a hand-to-mouth existence as the vast majority of the working classes would have done at the time you know working either in docks or working in in the factories that are coming or in the various industries if you were poor and unemployed you might be in the poorhouse. It's not something you would have particularly cared about if you were at the bottom of society. This was really more of an elite level type of uh, concern and something that was pursued at the elite level. You know, you were influencing Parliament to uh, to affect the change. You didn't really know what the conditions were in, in the West Indies. You know, a lot of people who go out from Ulster, people like John Black, who go to the West Indies, whose lessons you can get. Um, I think through Four Courts Press, you go there and you never return. You know, it's one of those things. It's not something often you would come back. So a lot of people wouldn't, be aware of, of what's happening in in the West Indies you only you're only getting this information through works like uh, Equianus etc so it's very much an elite elite level type of, of concern and given Belfast was a relatively small place at the time around 20,000 people and the community involved maybe 500 and if you think it was very very small so it wasn't was not something that was uh, widely wasn't wasn't a popular movement in any way.
0: After centuries of shipping Africans across the Atlantic, the British Empire finally banned the slave trade in 1807. And then, 26 years later, in 1833, they would pass legislation banning the institution of slavery itself. The campaign against slavery, however, did not end, but rather shifted focus to the US, where millions remained in slavery, particularly in the southern states. The demand to free slaves in the USA saw a reinvigorated movement emerge in Belfast in the 1840s. Again, former slaves played
2: a central role in this movement, as Tom explains. This, this movement this, this is very interesting. Certainly in Belfast, it seems to be very much connected with the uh, arrival of various, I suppose, fugitive slaves, as, as, as they're described in, in the various papers. You've got Lloyd Garrison coming in 1840 and Charles Raymond Lennox. Now, he is he was, I think, descended from slaves, but he's part of the American anti slavery movement. They come in in 1840 and there's a huge convention held in London, the World Anti Slavery Convention, to which they attend and a large number of individuals go. And, and so there's a sort of a, a rise of this sort of I suppose awareness, it, this sort of radical movement starts to to look for things. So, so in many ways, the 1830s has been a, a number of debates, uh, uh, slavery has been abolished in 1833, but you have a number of subsequent debates about the the, the so called apprentice status of these various former slaves, which in, in many ways isn't much better than being a slave. And so, this legislation goes, and so you sort of have a slight hiatus. But then in the 1840s, it starts to, to kick off again. And obviously, Frederick Douglass comes in. 1845, 1846, and his his impact is electric. Uh, he, he, you know, in many ways, he is quote the genuine deal. He is a, a an escaped fugitive slave. He's wanted in America, whereas Lennox is freed, though he he comes from a obviously a history of slaves, and. He, he has this amazing sort of ability to hold rooms and he is articulate, he is passionate and he's also very, very sophisticated in, in the arguments he, he, he uses. He talks about various things, so he travels around Ireland and the way he he, he speaks in different ways to his island. For instance, in the South Dublin and Cork and places I think Waterford he, he, he goes through briefly he talked very much about you know wanting to further Catholic emancipation and, and things like this and maybe the independence of Ireland but when he's talking to, to audiences in the north the inter-constitutional question is mysteriously dropped you know so he's he's very well aware of his the audience he's speaking to and he's speaking to a, you know a broad audience you know this, this is this is what I was amazed at when I started doing sort of the anti-slavery tour around Belfast was how much the issue of slavery as with the issue of religion and the constitutional question becomes a, a wedge issue where you have groups on either side. And this was quite amazing. In that sense, but you know, so so this 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 sort of comes re-energized in the 1840s. Um, you have the Belfast Women's Anti-Slavery Society, which is established, and there, there's a wonderful document which sets out their their aims. And it's you know the committee of the the Belfast Ladies Anti-Slavery Association, and they have an address to the ladies of Ulster. And there's and again it's formed of the great and the good. You've got um, as president you've got Miss Ward from bangor castle and you've got various other people and also this this includes maryanne mccracken who's obviously connected with the united friend. and so 1845 she's probably in her mid-70s at this time so you know she's a formidable woman who's who's been around and it, it becomes very much energized and this sort of whole again you you're getting a second i suppose tranche of accounts coming out you, you've got uh, douglas's accounts and it's a very much something, again, it's, it's a relatively elite and an, an elite movement in many ways. This is not something that is, is a, a popular cause for many people, but it certainly energised when all these individuals come over. And, you know, you get um, Samuel Ringwald, Ringwald Gold, who comes in the 1850s as well. So, you know, it's not just Douglas. There, there are a whole number of individuals who, who come over.
0: Now, as our interview drew to a close, I asked Tom about the legacy of slavery in Belfast today. And he shared a few anecdotes that revealed the complex and often contradictory attitudes people in the city held towards slavery
2: and anti-slavery over the centuries. There are lots of sorts of, I suppose there's no, there's no real, I mean, for instance, we don't have any statues like Edward Colston, who met his watery end in Bristol a couple of years ago. We don't want, and people like Waddell Cunningham are, there's nothing really around that, that connects them to that. But there's, so there's lots of reminders, and there are going to be reminders at, at the time that we're talking. There are plans in Belfast to have a statue of Mary McCracken in the City Hall. Obviously, she's a prominent anti slavery campaigner, but that's not the only thing she does. And there's also a plan to have a statue of Frederick Douglass, which I suppose will be beginning to become tangible. reminders of that but i suppose there there are lots of reminders around the city if you know what you're looking for because there are it's what what i'm always surprised at is when you go for instance if we go if you go to donegal street and you go to st patrick's church which is one of the places we stop and you 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 go out you look at you look up there's a little statue of st patrick and obviously he was a slave obviously he was kidnapped from from britain as far as we know and brought to ireland and then escaped and returned and brought christianity with him and there's little reminders like that and then we then we look at people like Henry Cook, who there's a famous statue of Henry Cook. He was a Presbyterian preacher, pretty virulent unionist, largely anti-Catholic. And he, his statue is outside Inst, which is the Royal Academical Institution. Now, the re- and his statue is facing away from Inst. Now, the reason being because he had doctrinal differences with many of the people who set up Inst. It was set up by a lot of liberal Presbyterians, a lot of former United Irishmen. He he himself was a pretty virulent Unionist, but again, he was an abolitionist. And people don't realise this. You think, well, he he can't be. But this is what is so fascinating about Belfast and this whole anti-slavery. Movement. You've got people like Cook, and then then there was another individual called Thomas Drew. Now Thomas Drew, Drew is blamed for inciting a lot of anti-Catholic feeling. Various committees. He was an Orangeman. He was, um, a, you know, a Low Church Anglican. And then you find that he's on the platform with Douglas, and he he says of Douglas, and I, I will quote this is one one quote, which is wonderful. And he he talks about how Douglas is the stone in the sling of David that will slay the Goliath of American slavery. And you know it's things like this that I find utterly amazing. And then from the other side of the religious divide, you have O'Connell, uh, Daniel O'Connell. But Daniel O'Connell, again, he was a very, very abolitionist, and he was having no trunk, and this caused a lot of problems for the the movement in America to you know help get uh, Irish emancipation, because a lot of people, a lot of Irishmen who uh, or Irish people, obviously emigrating to Ireland in the eighteen forties post the famine, looking for. Labour often competing for jobs with free black people in places like Boston and New York this is causes a lot of tension so O'Connell's abolitionist stance causes, causes tension within that movement and that becomes very interesting so it's really really interesting this whole sort of religious divide. And I suppose on the other the other side, you've got people like John Mitchell, who is a young islander. He is, is a colleague of O'Connell's for a while in the 1830s, 1840s, but he joins a much more radical movement and, and, and attempts some type of, of revolution in 1848. And he's sent by the British to, uh, or transported to Van Diemen's land. He escapes and ends up in New York and ends up serving with the Confederacy during the American Civil War and loses two sons, which is quite amazing. He returns to Ireland in the 1860s and still retains his pretty racist and pretty virulent virulent views. And if you you know he's commemorated in Mitchell Square in Uri. But again, it's always this is what's so fascinating about this, this subject. It's it's not simple, but it's the complexity and and the, the wealth of you know the different characters who are involved and their and their various positions. On things, it's not not it not what you would have thought.
0: Finally, I asked Tom to explain where you
2: could find out more about his tour in Belfast. So, to find out more about the tours that me, me, and my colleague Mark Doherty do, um, please go to the anti-slaverybelfast.com website. That will probably have all the details. A number of these are on Eventbrite, but if you are listening and it's the winter, we may not be doing it. So check out the website. That will give you a link to where you can find out more. And obviously, we're on various social media outlets with anti slavery Belfast.
0: I'd like to thank Tom for his time. I'll be back with a whole new episode next week. Until then, Sloan. Cool
1: fact.